Amen. Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to try to take the whole chapter, verses 1 through 34. So we're moving closer to the cross. We're a week out, actually, from the cross in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to have a lesson in greatness, greatness in the kingdom. What does it mean to be great? Last week we saw a man turn away from Jesus. You remember the rich young ruler asked, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments, you know. And well, I, okay, which ones? I've kept all those. Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what. Part with your idol in life, your money. The one thing that you're willing to put ahead of me, go ahead and part with that and then come follow me. And the guy said, I don't want anything to do with that. Essentially, Jesus said, put me first. The guy said, I'm not willing, chose his riches instead. And he turned down salvation. And at that point, you know, the music that's playing in the movie would have just turned to like really sad music, you know. Well, at that time, Peter looks up and goes, hey, we've essentially done what you asked him to do. We've parted with everything, all of our homes, our wives, everything like that. We've, we've left other. What do we get? All right? And this message is going to kind of, it's in that same context. We're still in that same sort of context. Jesus is going to deal with that question of Peter, more or less deal with the attitude that Peter had that prompted that question. But the overall theme of the chapter is dealing with greatness in the kingdom. It's something that can be pulled out of it. I always give you the main point here, if you're kind of a main point person. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. He took the form of a servant. Therefore, to be great in the kingdom, we need to be servants. Just simple logic. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus was a servant. Therefore, we want to be great. We need to be servants. And we'll get that through this passage here today. It's a very simple outline, three points. And you can see them on the screen or they're in your hand out there. Jesus warns about bad motives for serving, first of all. Jesus teaches about greatness in the kingdom. Jesus displays compassion by healing to blind men. So like being great in the kingdom, you know, the first one deals with kind of motives, you know. Next one, uh, Jesus is going to teach very specifically what makes for greatness in the kingdom. In fact, he'll say, if you want to be great in the kingdom, and he'll give a, we'll, we'll let him answer that when we get to it. And then uh, he displays compassion by healing two blind men. And that's really a good attribute. Compassion is something that makes a person great in the kingdom. That's where we're going. So look at chapter 19, verse 27 for a second, if you would. In this first section, in verses 1 through 16, Jesus is going to kind of take off on what Peter said in chapter 19, verse 27. See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what should we have? So Jesus is going to now talk, he's going to give a parable to teach a lesson, and it's going to deal with the attitude that was in Peter's heart that Jesus detected that was prompting that question. He says, for the kingdom of heaven, verse 1, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. So he's going to use a parable and he's going to teach a lesson about serving in God's kingdom. The landowner is the main character in this parable. Okay. You always want to figure that out when you're studying parables. Who's the main character? The landowner is the main character in this parable. It says that he sent them out early in the morning. Uh, it's 6 a.m. And we can tell because he sends some out at different times of the day and he gives the times for those. And so this is the beginning of the workday in this culture is 6 a.m. Their workdays were 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was very common. 
<clears throat> now, this would have been a very familiar scene, a landowner going out to hire day laborers to work in their vineyard or in their field or whatever. It reminds me of when I lived in Los Angeles, and I don't know if you've ever been to Southern California, but sometimes we'd be out driving around, you know, in the morning and uh, really early, and you'd go by Home Depot, and you would see all these guys standing by the gate at Home Depot. And I always wondered, like, what's going on there? Like, the guys are, some guys are on the ground sleeping, and there's coolers out there, and there's everything else. I always wondered, what is that? And what would happen is if you needed some help for the day, you'd go to Home Depot, and you'd hire these guys. I don't know if they do that anymore. I think they made it illegal, actually. It was, but for the longest time, that's, that's what you would do, just day laborers, guys looking to work for the day. I think maybe they, it wasn't, well, you can put it together. So they don't do it anymore. But that's kind of the same idea. That was commonplace in this day and age. And he made an agreement, this landowner, uh, with them for a denarius a day. And I want you to notice that word there, agreement, okay? That's a key to the parable. He made an agreement with them. Keep in mind, this is dealing with Peter's question, what do we get? And here's this word agreement. Just let that stand out in your mind. Like if somebody put a thumbtack, you know, in your bulletin board, uh, agreement. Now, a denarius is a, it's a day's wage, um, so in this time and age, what happened was you'd go out and you'd work, you'd get paid a denarius, a day's wage, you'd get paid at the end of the day. In fact, the Old Testament law says you have to pay your workers at the end of the day. It's in the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And so that's how it worked. You'd go out and you'd work a day, if, you know, and you'd get paid for that day, and you'd take care of your family, and you had enough money for like that day. And then you'd go around and do it again the next day. People didn't really have savings, you know, and things like that. So... He goes out, he sees a group six in the morning, makes an agreement with them, sends them out to the vineyard, verse three. And he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth and did likewise. About the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. Well, he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. They're standing there idle. It doesn't mean they're lazy. It just means they haven't been hired. And so he goes back and um, he goes, you know, back at 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. or 5 p.m., excuse me. So 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m. And he goes out and gets some more. And he goes out and gets some guys even at the 11th hour, all right? 12-hour workday, he gets them at the 11th hour. And so they're going to come in and just work for an hour. And notice that what the landowner did there. Did he make an agreement with them? No, right. Bonnie got it. He didn't make an agreement. He just said, go in and I'll give you whatever's right. And they took his word for it. They trusted that he'd be a good master. And they just went in and got to work. Now, if we do the math... We would think, okay, this makes sense. So the first batch gets a denarius. The second batch, 9 a.m., they must get three-quarter a denarius. Next one get a half a denarius. Next one the quarter. And then the one at the 11th hour, they would get a twelfth of a denarius. It just makes sense, right? And if you were there, you'd be putting this together, maybe thinking this. So when evening comes around, verse 8, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. Interesting. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. And when the first came, 
they supposed they would receive more and likewise received each a denarius. So you get the picture here. It's, here comes the end of the day. They're going to get paid. And he says, make a line, but I want the guys that came in at 5 p.m. to get paid first. And he's doing this deliberately so everybody sees his generosity and his goodness. So remember last time when Peter asked, uh, you know, what do we get? And then Jesus ended that little paragraph by saying, many who were first would be last and the last would be first. And here he calls the last to get paid first and the first are getting paid last. See, Peter thought he'd be the first. That's that whole attitude like, look all what I gave up. I'll surely be in the first and see what Jesus is teaching him. Now, a lot of people have taught this parable. This came in about the time of Martin Luther. Uh, a guy named Philip Melanchthon is the first guy that they've tr traced it to where he was talking about salvation. Like, it doesn't matter if you get saved on the last day of your life, the 11th hour, you know, you get heart attack Christian. You're on your deathbed and deathbed Christians. And they get the same heaven as anybody that's been saved. That's a true truth. Everybody does go to the same heaven, but that's not what this parable is about. He's addressing Peter's attitude about what do we get? And he's showing here an illustration of this last and first sort of thing. So the landowner, he chose to be extremely gracious with this last group, giving them a whole day's wages. And if you think about it, how could they feed their families with a twelfth of a denarius? And so he's choosing to be very gracious. He could have just been just, but instead he's being gracious. The first came, and they supposed that they would receive more. Now, as they stood in line, they saw the generosity of the landowner. They figured, wowee, we're going to get 12 denarius, man. We'll probably get at least six denarius. At least. Well, at least three denarius, probably five. And they get up there, and they get one denarius. And they, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. And verse 11, when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men, they worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, and he said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil, or is it envious? Because I am good. Are you envious because I'm a good landowner and I, I'm generous to people? Are you envious? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. I'm going to talk about what that means in a second. So this is sort of a warning in a sense. Because you see... This guy that's in this first group, he's assuming that the rewards in the kingdom of God are kind of like this mechanical sort of thing, like almost like entitlement, right? And you go back to Peter's question, what do we get? That reveals entitlement, right? I mean, if you've got kids and they say something to you like, well, what do I get? You know, you can tell that they're and they think they're entitled to something. You know what I mean? You did this for them, and now what do I get? Well, it's entitlement. And so Jesus is getting to this entitlement that's in Peter's heart, and he's getting at this bad motive about serving, right? And he's teaching a very vivid lesson here. 
In Peter's question, so we've left, what do we get? Jesus detected this heart attitude that needed to be dealt with. So he tells this parable about a landowner that at the minimum, he does what is right. But he actually does exceedingly abundantly more than anybody could ask or think. You remember that first group? Remember I told you to put a thumbtack in your bulletin board about that word agreement? So the first group, they come out making an agreement, saying, what do we get if we go into this vineyard and work? So he makes an agreement with them. And he comes back and he honors that agreement. There's a lesson in that. Talk about it in a second. So he's essentially responding to Peter, saying, your service should not be motivated by rewards. You know? Even though you know God rewards, our service should not need to be negotiated and agreed upon. We should simply serve because he is God and we owe him everything and we can trust him to do what is right. That's the point. We should not need to sit and hash out all the details with God about rewards. We should trust that God is always going to do what's right. That's the point. Well, if I give up this whole Christian, you know, my whole worldly stuff and I start to get into this Christianity, like what am I going to get out of it? Well, um, well, you won't get the death and hell that you deserve. <laughs> I just, you know, I hate to be harsh, but I mean, you won't get that. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, not a very fun thing to say, but it's true. In fact, you'll get this life of abundant blessing of knowing that you have purpose and being able to be engaged in some work that actually counts for eternity rather than all this money or something that's just going to burn up, you know, or whatever it is. You can actually be involved in serving a good and gracious king one that loves you and has compassion on you and cherishes and loves you and died for you. And, and you can be involved in bringing other people into the kingdom and you can be all these different things. Well, what do I get out of it? Well, see how that question's a little bit insulting to ask Jesus. And so I love the way Jesus dealt with it. He didn't just go, oh, Peter and get offended or something like that. He just teaches him in this parable. Um, you know, if you want to be the kind of person that makes agreements with God and then God comes and he's just good on his agreement, but then you get jealous because he just blesses other people. Why is he blessing him so much? Well, okay, here's some lessons in this. Number one, don't bargain with God. You know, because typically you'll probably settle for less than he wants to do. You ever think about that? God, if you'll just take this drug problem out of my life, and then, then I, you know, if I could just be sober, if I could just be sober, man, all, like, all I care about is just being sober. Oh, yeah? Well, God, God will throw that in as a byproduct of being a disciple. You know what I mean? I've seen that a bunch of times. When you want to make a bargain with God, you'll probably settle for way less than he wants to really do. Ever experienced that in your own life? Another lesson in this. Get your eyes off of what God is doing with other people. You know, they wouldn't have had a problem if they're sitting there watching. But it's interesting. The, the landowner made it like this. He lines them up like this. So, he can, so these people that wanted to live by this, like, I'll make an agreement with you, they see his generosity. Think about this. The most miserable Christians are the ones that are dealing with God legally. Legalists. They're the most miserable Christians. I can't drink. I can't go to, I can't dance. I can't go to movies anymore. I can't do this. I can't do that. And that's all they see is that I can't do this because they're trying to buy God through their obedience and they're making agreements with God 
And those are the type of people that look at people that are just getting blessed and they get jealous of them. And they start to get envious and they start to get mad at God because, I don't know, I've been such a good person for so long and God doesn't pour out blessings on me like he does this heathen over here. Well... It's because you have a legal relationship with God and you're not relating to him based on grace. You want to be happy and you want to be content and joyful and abundant and experience joyful Christian life? Relate to God based on his grace. Just get up off your butt and get into his kingdom and start working and trust that God will do what's right and you will be abundantly blessed. That's the point of that parable right there, right? So Jesus would say to you today, if you're trying to bargain with him, don't you just trust that he'll do what's right? Don't you just trust that he'll do what's right? Number two, Jesus teaches about greatness in the kingdom, verse 17. This is the most detailed prediction about Jesus' death and resurrection uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify and the third day he will rise again. Going up to Jerusalem, it's interesting because they're heading south. Why does it say going up to Jerusalem if they're heading south? Because the elevation of Jerusalem is like 2,500 feet. And every time you go to Jerusalem, whether it's from the north, south, east, or the west, you always approach it up. That's why some of the Psalms are called the Psalms of Ascents. Ever seen that? It's because they sang those on their way up to Jerusalem. Beautiful Psalms. They're in like the 120s, 127 in that range. Read the Psalms of Ascents and think about it. Oh, we're going up to Jerusalem. clear in the timing of all this that they would be at the Passover. They all understood that because the Passover is coming. It's a week away. You know, Jesus was crucified, you know, over the Passover to fulfill the typology of the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. He comes in right on schedule. Palm Sunday prophesied down to the day, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 tells you exactly how many days from the rebuilding of the temple, the decree that goes out from Artaxerxes. You guys know this stuff. Prophecy people know this. You can calculate it down to the day. Sir Arthur Anderson worked out the exact days to where Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 14 prophecy, or not 14, Zechariah 12. Somewhere in there. Don't quote me on that. All worked out. You know, when Jesus predicts his death, people that are interested in prophecy, this is interesting, right? Because these are prophecies. Jesus was saying, this is exactly going to happen. This time, something new about this is he adds, I'm going to be betrayed. So that's a new, he hasn't told him that before. Betrayal has to do with a friend, right? You can't be betrayed unless somebody was close to you and then that person betrays you. And so he's referring to, of course, who? Judas, Judas? yeah. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13, talks about the 30 pieces of silver. So in your homework today, this week, read Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Easy one to remember. 11, 12, 13, 11, 12 through 13. And it talks about 30 pieces of silver and connect how Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Think about this, though, just for a second. Jesus is faithfully serving and he's moving towards the cross, knowing that betrayal is part of his future. You know, we marvel at his obedience and his love for us. Can you imagine that? Like you're trying to do ministry 
And you know that if you keep press, pressing on faithfully that you're going to experience this, <laughs> you know, betrayal. People are going to stab you in the back. People are going to, you know, sell you out. People are going to kill you, you know, possibly, you know, in your life or, or whatever. And so we look at Jesus. We just marvel at that, you know. I don't know how I would do in those situations, you know. I'm sure I wouldn't do as well as Jesus, right? And so we just look at him and we say, wow, what resolve that he had. I can't get out of bed if I know the weather report's going to be bad very easily. You know what I mean? Like I look at my phone app and it's like, it's going to rain all day. I'm like, oh, gee, you know? But Jesus is like, he gets out of bed and he looks at his agenda and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, cross, death. Let's, let's go, you know? I'm going to do it because I love people. I want to save them. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> this guy right here, he's going to betray me. I'm still going to be loving to him. It's all good. Whoa, you know? Wow, Jesus. It says that he'll be, he'll be uh, turned over to the chief priests and the scribes. You see that there? The religious rulers of the day are the ones that had Jesus killed. They, they wanted Jesus to be killed. Think about that. The heads of the denomination, the heads, the religious rulers are the ones that killed God in the flesh. Think about that. Think about how twisted and corrupted you can get when you're involved in religion, Right? And they will condemn him to death in an illegal overnight trial. You remember the false testimony brought against him? A bunch of people can't even agree on their testimonies. Finally, they get it straight to where, you know, it's, oh, he's guilty of blasphemy. Um, false charges trumped up against him. Uh, but they don't have the legal authority to actually kill Jesus, right? The Romans do. Now, just because they didn't have the legal authority to kill Jesus, it doesn't mean that they um, didn't always kill people, right? Who did they kill anyway? Come on, Bible trivia. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, first martyr of the church. They stone him to death. Okay, well, now you know. So they legally didn't have the right to kill Jesus, though. So that's why it goes on in there. And it says, verse 19, they would deliver him to the Gentiles, talking about the Romans. So what they did then was they took and they made Jesus seem like he was a threat to Caesar. Because if you were a threat to Caesar, then you would be dealt with. If there was any sort of uprising in the Roman Empire, they would just violently just destroy you. So the Jews want him dead for blasphemy because Jesus is claiming to be God. That's why they want to kill him. And they don't want anything to do with him. So they have to get him turned over to the Romans. But the only way they can get the Romans excited about it is to say, oh, he's going to overthrow Caesar. And so that's the whole thing. And look, it goes on in verse 19. It says that they'll mock and scourge him and crucify him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and mashed it in and spit on him, put a bag over his face, punched him in the face, led him to the cross. Uh, eventually they crucified him, put the nails through his wrists, through his ankles, and had him first carry the crossbar of the cross um, through Jerusalem. Simon the Cyrene carries it to get him to the cross. He's so beaten. When they scourged him, what they did was they took a whip that had bone fragments and rock fragments in it and ripped open his back to the point to where his organs are exposed and uh, then took him in that state and led him, paraded him around, mocked him and uh, took him to the cross. But that's not the end of the story. It says on right here uh, that on the third day that he would rise again. No. After being placed in the tomb of Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, after the Roman guards made it as secure as they knew how to do, after three days, the Christ came out of the tomb. Now, 
at that cross, he paid the penalty for the sin of the world. The penalty of the sin of the world was laid upon Jesus when he was crucified. That's what happened. He faces this determined, knowing what he will experience. The cross showing us the serious, terrible nature of sin. The cross showing us the love of the Savior. This is greatness in the kingdom of God is just, you know, and I don't want to say you can be just like Jesus because I wouldn't put that burden on any of us to say you can be just like Jesus. I wouldn't do that to any of us. We can't be like Jesus, but you can learn what greatness is. It's putting your needs aside for the needs of others, doing what God has called you at any cost, right? That's what he did. That's greatness in the kingdom. Now, the disciples do not get it at this point. They are so set in their preconceived notions about what the Messiah should be that this does not make sense to them. Jesus just got done telling them that he's going to die and he's going to be, he's, these people are not going to be happy when I come into Jerusalem. You guys understand that? Like, it's not going to be that we're going to go in there and, you know, have a church picnic and, you know, and it's, we're going to have a lock-in for like the next three days and have Awanas and have a VBS and stuff. We're not going to do all that stuff, you know? It's going to be people murdering me. Do you, I mean, do you get that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we get that. Well, verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, those are James and John, okay, came to him, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, if you ever wondered if the disciples got it, that proves right there they don't get it. I just got done telling you I'm going to go. Jesus just gets done telling them they're going to murder me. And she comes up kneeling. Oh, oh. And this woman has been with Jesus, ministering to him. She was with, you know, you put it together and find out. She was in his circle. And like, Jesus is familiar with this lady. You know what I, and I almost imagine that when she comes doing this, that Jesus is like, you know, because he knows what's in men's hearts, right? Women's hearts. And I imagine that he's like, come on, you know? And she makes this great, oh, hmm. what do you wish, you know? Get up. What do you wish? Well, hearing that, remember in the last message Jesus promised, he said that when Peter said, what do you get? He said, you're going to be sitting on 12 thrones, ruling in my kingdom. Okay, well, they must have heard that and been like, okay, so all 12 have a special spot. Well, here's what I want is I want my two sons to have a special spot within the special group. You know, I want them to be, you know, vice president and, you know, and I want them to get promoted. You know, can you get my sons a promotion? It reminds me of the scarecrow that got promoted because he really stood out in his field. <laughs> That's so terrible. <laughs> or the lumberjack that got promoted. Now he's the branch manager. <laughs> I totally have this other one that I'm not going to let out. This is not going to do it. Okay. Okay. The guy was working at Old McDonald's Farm. He got promoted. Now he's the CIEIO. <laughs> Oh my gosh. 
Well, it's almost as funny as this woman coming and asking. It's ridiculous. You know? I just told you that I'm going to go to my death, and you ask that your sons can sit at my right and left hand. It's that ridiculous. I mean, Jesus is probably laughing at that question, you know, inside, I would think, you know. So maybe it was a good place for humor because it's humorous, you know. I don't know. One on your right hand, one on the other. I want these guys to get the promotion. Totally missed the point back in chapter 18. Become as little children. Totally missed the point. These guys want the crown without the cross, as one commentator says. They want the throne without the, without the altar of sacrifice. They want the glory without the suffering that leads to it. And that's a big problem with a lot of people today. They want the benefits of Christianity, but they don't like the whole blood and, this, and the death to self. And if anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And I'll tell you what, a great percentage of Christianity has given over to a crossless Christianity. All it talks about is the abundant blessing and all that stuff. And it attracts people in with this carnality of like, I can get all this stuff. I can have all this stuff. And then these people go and they start tithing money and they start watching, you know, Joel Osteen and all this other stuff. And they start wondering, why is my life not getting better? You're missing a key element of Christianity. You're missing the cross. (laughs) You're missing the self-death because the glory follows the self-death. You see, Jesus, when he calls you, he says, you need to put me first and everything else comes afterwards. And then your flesh goes, ah, I don't know if I want to do that. And that's where the death starts coming in. Anybody there? Anybody been there? Anybody wondering why Christianity doesn't seem a very blessed thing? It's just like, I just, I don't know, I don't get it. Have you been to the cross? Have you been? to the place where Jesus' calling is so strong on your life that you, you know that he's bidding you to come and die to everything except for him. Have you been there? That's what he's calling. That's what he's calling all of us to do. He's calling everybody, not just special people, not just the 12. Not, he's calling everybody. That's true Christianity. Uh, God created me. I've fallen. I've sinned. He gave his life to save me, to spring me from the penalty of sin. Now that he's done that, that he's bought me out of the slavery to sin and he's paid for my sin, I owe him everything. And he's called me to die to myself and to live for Christ. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. That's what he's called every Christian to do. But these guys, they don't get that. They said, just go on the blessing. Just give us the blessing. Promote us to right and left hand. And they even set their mommy up to do it for them. You know? I love, I love Jesus. Look at the answer. Verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. That's an understatement. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we're able. (laughs) In other words, you know what the cup is, right? Talking about the cross. You able to give your life for God? Yeah, we're able. (laughs) You know what I mean? So he said to him, well, you indeed will drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. It's not up to Jesus. This is the Father's jurisdiction of who goes where in the kingdom. Matthew 26, 39, as Jesus is praying the night before he's crucified, he's praying to his father and he says, Father, if this cup may pass from me, 
what the cup is, is a figure of speech talking about the king pouring out his wrath on a people, right? Like if a king's going to declare war, it's like, I'll pour out the cup of my vengeance on them. That's, it's a figure of speech. And he's talking, about, he's talking about God, the Father, pouring out the cup of wrath against sin, our sin, onto the Savior, and Jesus prays the night before he's crucified. If there's any way that this cup could pass from me, let it be. Jesus prays until drops of blood are coming out of him, Luke tells us, three times. Three times, God doesn't answer. And he says, nevertheless, thy will be done, not my will. And Jesus leaves the garden and he goes to the cross. And that's the Father's will. That's how, that's how you know there's no other way because the Father didn't give him another way. That's what he's talking about with the cup. And he's looking at those two that want this great position in the kingdom. He says, are you able to die to self? Are you able to die for this? Oh, yeah, we're able. No problem. Turns around and says, well, you indeed will be baptized. In fact, you read in the book of Acts, James does get martyred. He loses his life. And uh, John ends up kind of living a martyr's life. He gets exiled to the island of Patmos. They tried to boil him in lead according to uh, church tradition or boil him in oil and uh, didn't die. And then so they put him out on the island of Patmos and he wrote the book of Revelation and different stuff out there too. Verse 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers because Jesus called, or I'm sorry, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. They're greatly displeased probably because they didn't think of it first. And Jesus says, you know what? People that don't know God, the pagan world, they put rulers above people and they rule like domineering with an iron fist, authoritarians. This is how the Romans were. They were well aware of this. Some of you have worked at jobs like that where you've got a boss that always reminds everybody that they're the boss. You know, well, I'm the boss. And I'll tell you, this is what you're going to do. You're going to come in on Saturday and you're going to come in twice on Saturday. And I'm the boss. And you're like, okay. Uh, thank you. And if you don't, I'm going to fire you, you know, and like threatening you all the time and stuff. And Jesus says, that's how pagans do it. You know, that's how people that don't know how the kingdom of God works do it. Right. There's actually husbands that do that in marriage. It's unfortunate. Right. Well, I'm the guy. So I'm the leader of the marriage. Well, I'll tell you what, Jesus says that you need to be a servant partner, you know, and like he calls us to be servants, to serve one another. He washes feet. This is the savior that came and set aside all of his rights. And he came down and he took the form of a servant and he took the death of the cross, this horrible death, and he served people and he washed their feet. And he says, you be like that. Now you, you do this. That's, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you don't try to advance and scramble your way to the top to get positions of authority. You actually try to scramble your way down as much as you can and get underneath, you know, and start serving. It's not a top-down management. I want to have a, let's have a PowerPoint up here to demonstrate the top-down management structure of corporate America. No, let's go ahead and let's talk about the bottom-up structure, you know, where the servant sits at the bottom. Let's take all the signs that say, parking spot reserved for the pastor. Let's just do away with all that garbage and just, you know, he's a servant, man. He's called to be the servant, you know? Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to keep, I'm going to just wrap it up here. He says it shall not be 
so among you. This is true kingdom greatness here. I want you to think about that. If you're a young person here today and you're involved in a family, you've got brothers and sisters, the tr you want to be great in your family? Be the servant. Husbands, you want to be great in your marriage? Be the servant. Wives, you want to be great in your marriage? Be the servant, right? You want to be a great employee? Be the servant. You want to be great in this community? Great in the church? Be the servant. That's right. When people come here and they say, I want to serve, there's only one, we, we're like, we're very specific. We're like, what do you want to do? And then we watch what they say. Because if they say, oh, I don't care, do anything. We're like, yep, you're in. You know, because, you know, I'll scrub a toilet, I'll get the cigarette butts. I don't care what it is. I just want to serve the Lord. I just want to be like him. I want to be a servant. You know, somebody comes in, well, I'll serve the church, but all I want to do is play music. And, you know, and all, that's all I want to do is I just, I want to play guitar here, man. And, and okay, well, probably not. You know, I mean, let, okay, we'll work you into that. How about we start you with toilets? You know, I mean, <laughs> I can't play that. Well, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. The goal should always be serving, not ruling. Those most highly esteemed will be those who serve, those who are humble. And this is a good memory verse for you in 28. I would just really try to memorize this verse. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. I would really try to memorize that. He didn't, he, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom, it's a slave market term. Jesus is the payment to buy a slave's freedom. freedom. He's, a ransom is the payment to buy the person out of the slave block. He bought you out of slavery to the devil. Jesus' motive, servant even unto death. James and John's motive, position, power. Number three, finally, Jesus displays compassion by healing two blind men. Now as they went... Out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Now, you're saying, wait a minute. It says he's going out of Jericho, but Luke says he's going into Jericho. Uh, Bible contradiction. Bible's fake. <laughs> you know, and people will get hung up on stuff like this. But good news, archaeologists discovered quite some time ago that there were two Jerichos, an old and a new Jericho. And so amazing accuracy details of the Bible. Luke records that they were approaching and one's going out and, and uh, fits together. So just for you people that are paying close attention to your Gospels there. That's one of those things where the unbelieving world will get really hung up on, on stuff and they'll point out little inconsistencies like that. But they're inconsistencies that you should expect when you're getting three different humans' standpoint of an event. <coughs> now this great multitude is following Jesus. And so you can imagine, this is the last leg of Jesus' journey. And they're thinking, man, when he gets to Jerusalem... He's going to deal with these Romans. It's, he's going to bring in the Messiah. He's going to just bring in this military rule. And he's just going to take out all of our enemies all at once. And so you can imagine this fervor, this great multitude following along with him, singing the song and, and just being all, you know, it's coming, it's coming. And while that's happening, you know, the Messiah, he's got really important stuff to do, you know. These two blind guys 
Now, the Jews at this time assumed, they were kind of like prosperity teachers. They, they kind of assumed that if you were blind, that God must obviously be mad at you. And while they're doing this huge multitude and on the way to do really important stuff, here's these two guys that are blind. And so they come, they don't have spirit, or, you know, visualized, but they have spiritualized and they know it's Jesus and they start calling out. And the multitude tells them, uh, be quiet. And there's a great lesson from these two blind people right here. That even if the multitude tries to stop you from getting to Jesus, don't stop until you get to Jesus, you know? I think it's a good word. There's some people that get pretty discouraged, you know? Like, oh, I should really start getting in my Bible every day. Oh, but my spouse doesn't want to do that with me. Or I should do this, or, you know, none of my friends are... Not, I really think I should go to a Bible study, but none of my friends are into that kind of stuff. Well, don't get defeated so easily, you know? Look at these two blind guys, you know? They're being told to be quiet, and they just yell out all the more, Jesus, Son of David, come on! Love it. They cried out all the more. What a scene. There are people that think Jesus is too busy to deal with people's needs. Isn't that interesting? We're so busy about ministry up here. You know, we've got ministry to do. I, how could Jesus possibly be concerned with... Verse 32, Jesus stood still and called them. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Whole multitude stops, like, really, Jesus? What are you, come on, we just told him to be quiet. What, you know, what are you doing? And I like it, too, how he says, what do you want me to do for you? Before they were just crying out, give us mercy, give us mercy. Does Jesus know what they need? Yeah, but of course he does. If, that, if the question ever starts with, does Jesus know? This is a gimme. You know what I mean? He's, he's omniscient. He knows everything, right? So anytime the question starts with, does Jesus know? You know that's like a trick question in a way. Like, of course he knows. And he uh, shows them mercy, but he, he wants them to get more specific. I think that's a good lesson for us, too. Sometimes you throw up a real generic prayer. Oh, God bless my family. Maybe it'd be more effective if your prayers were consistent and fervent and you're crying out and they're specific, you know, like maybe they would be. And he has compassion. Now, if you're a Bible highlighter, I would just mark those words. Compassion. Jesus had compassion. You need to get that in your head, especially if you grew up in a legalistic church, especially if you grew up in a harsh environment, um, you know, especially if you grew up with a harsh dad or authority figures in your life. Man, every time it says Jesus is compassionate in the Bible, you've got to get that into you because this is how Jesus deals with individuals that come to him in faith, right? This is how Jesus deals with individuals that come to him in faith is he, he deals with them compassionately. Now, we're just going to conclude here with a few words of application. Greatness in the kingdom is, first of all, motivated simply by the fact that we know God is good and he will do what is right. So if that's true, you don't need to bargain with God. You can take your eyes off of others and how God's dealing with them. And you can put your eyes upon Jesus and serve him with joy. Number two, humbly serving Jesus and others, not selfish ambition. Right. If you're concerned about getting attention, if you're concerned about stuff like that, um, 
you know, that's not what's important in the kingdom of God. What's important is to be a servant. You know, where it said many are called but few are chosen, I read a lot of different commentaries. How do, how do you interpret that? Uh, Dwight L. Moody had one that I think is probably pretty accurate, D.L. Moody, and he said, he interpreted it this way, many are called but few are choice, meaning there are a lot of people out there that are going to want to bargain, you know, and, and make legal agreements with God and try to get him like that, but few are choice. There are a few people out there that get so touched by the grace of God and his forgiveness that they just say, you know what, I just give you everything, Lord. I just give you everything. You've been so good to me. You've been so gracious to me, Lord. I just give you all. Many are called, but few are choice. Compassion is the last point here of what makes greatness in the kingdom. You know, you can be a theological expert and you can be very exacting in your knowledge of the scriptures and you should know the scriptures and you should know every jot and tittle, you know, because none of them will pass away. You should know everything about scriptures that you can get. But you don't ever want to get so puffed up in your Christianity that you lack compassion towards other people, you know. And that tends, those things tend to happen, you know. Paul says knowledge puffs up. So you have to be very careful about getting on a moral high horse and getting on this thing where you're like, all these people, all these sinners, you know, and then here I am, you know, because we're all sinners, desperate, you know, in need of God's mercy. And if he hadn't given you grace and been compassionate to you, you know, where would you be? You know, and so you have to be very careful to be a compassionate person. You know, I'm talking to the choir here, you know, preaching to the choir. So those three things. Maybe you've never known Jesus like this, full of compassion and mercy he came to serve you. He came to die for your sins. If you've never received him as Lord and Savior of your life, that's what you do is you just allow him to serve you. You just say, I'll acknowledge my sin to you and now I will allow what you did at the cross to be applied to me and I'll believe and I'll trust you and I'll give my life to you. And that's Jesus, the gracious, good and gracious king. He came to serve. And just let him, let him serve you in that, in that way. Let, the, let what he did at the cross be for you. Maybe this is just a good reminder today uh, to be humble and to be a good and gracious person if you desire to be great in the kingdom. Be like Jesus, right? So, Heavenly Father, thanks for your word here today and help us, Lord, to live it out by the power of your spirit. And we ask in your name. Amen.